Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. And open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, uh, verses 17 through 24. Before we read it, I, I want to ask a question for the little kids, or to the little kids. So, guys, Asa, Eliza, Marcus, all of you, how do crabs walk? Sideways. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Eliza. I, we're not in school. You can just <laughs> you can just say the answer. Um, yeah. Uh, so, what would you do if uh, the Hamblins' new puppies, when they grow up a little bit, a little bit more, they started to walk sideways like crabs? Call the vet, right? That that would be weird. That would be super weird. Can you imagine a little puppy walking sideways like a crab? That would be. Crazy. Now, what if I were to tell you, well, actually, these puppies used to be crabs. And for some crazy, miraculous reason, they became puppies. And then you saw them every once in a while. You know, they would be walking normally, but then every once in a while, you'd see them walking sideways. You'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, they used to be crabs, but they are no longer crabs and they should walk normally. Okay, well, that's a... That's a very, very simplified uh, uh, summary of our passage today. Very overly simplified, like at the risk of, of not, you know. Yeah, anyway, so let's read our passage today where Paul is telling the Ephesians, you are no longer Gentiles, therefore quit walking like Gentiles. That's basically, that's basically the point. And so let's read it. Um, and I will ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, holiness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we belong to you. We thank you that we are no longer Gentiles, 
but we are members of your people. We are members of your body, the body of your son, Jesus. We are a new humanity. We have been created after the likeness of God. Lord, I pray that you lead us as we look at your word. I pray that you would use your word in this passage to transform us, to transform our minds, our hearts, that we would learn to walk according to who we are, not who we used to be. Please uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Speak to us, nurture us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, yeah, basically in this passage, Paul is telling them, you used to be Gentiles, but you are to quit walking like Gentiles. You are no longer supposed to walk like Gentiles. But I want to ask the question, and this is rhetorical, I'm not looking for an answer. Why does this matter? Why, why do we need to know about the Gentiles and how they, they are and how we used to be when we were Gentiles? Why do we need to know these things? Well, I would offer two answers. One of them is we are in a spiritual battle, and this battle is not necessarily against other people. This battle is actually against, you know, it, it, it is a spiritual battle, but ultimately it is a battle against our old self. The enemy, the enemy or one of the enemies that we're fighting against is our old self. And so if you want to be successful in battle, you would benefit greatly if you know the enemy, if you know the characteristics of the enemy and the the tendencies of the enemy. And so I think that Paul here is trying to help us get to know the enemy so that we are more effective at killing the enemy, right? And in this case, the enemy is not the Gentiles. The enemy is our old self. So that's one part of the, of the, of the answer. Now, I think it also matters because... Make no mistake, the Gentiles are not necessarily our enemies. I think that when we look at, at this passage and we hear the description of the Gentiles, all of us should be able to look back and say, this was me, and these are my lost neighbors and my lost friends, and what they need is they need the light of the gospel. They need to be saved from their futile ways. They need to be saved from just running around in circles, accomplishing nothing of spiritual value. And I think that when we realize that that's who we used to be, that should drive us to have mercy on them. Instead of judging, instead of, you know, any other kind of response, it should, it should motivate us to have mercy and to want all the more to preach the gospel to the lost. This should really drive us or, or give us a missional mindset in which we think this used to be me. These are my neighbors now. I want to be used by God to bring my neighbors to the light. So that's, that's why I believe uh, that this matters. So here in this passage, we have 
a solemn call. We have a call to stop walking as the Gentiles. Then we have a contrast. We have the contrast of the gospel of Jesus, the way we learned Christ. And then we have three aspects of this new life that we have uh, in Christ. First, we have a solemn call to quit walking as the Gentiles walk. Then we have the contrast of the gospel, the contrast of Jesus. That is not the way that you learned Christ. And then finally, we have three aspects of Christian transformation, of Christian life. So he starts off by saying, now I say this, verse 17, now, I, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. First of all, I want us to know that this is a very serious call, right? It is not often or, or it is not always that Paul brings up Jesus when he is making an appeal. I mean, he does it sometimes. And when he does that, you know that it is a serious appeal. And this is one of those instances where he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. The fact that he needed or he felt the need to bring up the name of the Lord and say, I testify this in the Lord. It should get our attention and say, okay, tell me, Paul, what do you want to say here to us? This is important. This is not optional. This is not something we get to choose if we pay attention to or not. Not that any other part of the Bible is, but this is one of those where we need to pay close attention. And it says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer. And I really like how uh, different ways of translating that word that is no longer here in English. In, in English, I like uh, how in other translations it says, you must never again walk as the Gentiles walk. And I really like the never again, because even though no longer communicates the exact same thing, maybe I'm used to hearing it in that way. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And so when I hear that never again, it kind of like wakes me up a little bit to say, you should never again, not even once, you should never again walk as the Gentiles walk. In other words, this is a call to quit, to quit immediately a walking that is not in line with the calling that we have received. And then it says, walk as the, that, you, that you must never again walk as the Gentiles walk. Now, I keep saying walk, even though I know that it says do, if you have the, the English standard version, because actually in the Greek, Paul mentions walk twice in that verse. He says uh, that you must no longer, or you must never again walk as the Gentiles walk. And one thing that I was taught when I was, uh, when I was in Bible college is that when you are studying a passage, you want to look at the words that are repeated. You want to look at the words that the author feels the need to write multiple times because that might be the author trying to tell you something. And if you have paid attention to the letter of the Ephesians, you will remember that he uses the word walk a lot, right? So here he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. This stands in contrast with chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So on the one hand, he is urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That is God calling us to his kingdom, to himself, to being a part of his people. 
And now the contrast is you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You are no longer a Gentile. Even though ethnically, yes, we are Gentiles. We are not Jewish by blood or, or anything like that. But now, as we learned in chapter 2, out of the two ethnicities, out of the two people, Jews and Gentiles, God has made one new man. And if you are in Christ, you belong to that new man, to that new people of God. And therefore, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, as you used to walk when you were a Gentile. Gentile. Um, in, in chapter 2, verse 10, that word walk is also mentioned. Paul says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were called, we were saved so that we would walk in the good works that God prepared for us. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So notice how Paul is calling us to walk in a manner that is appropriate, in a manner that is right, in a manner that makes sense since we are no longer Gentiles. Or to use the analogy that I gave at, that I gave at the beginning, we are to no longer walk sideways as crabs because we are no longer crabs, we are puppies. <laughs> uh, now, how do the Gentiles walk? And this is, this is a, a really grim description of how the Gentiles walk. One thing that I really appreciate is that he doesn't say, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles in the futility of your minds. He says, in the futility of their minds. So he's making a distinction there. He's saying, you are no longer a Gentile. You are no longer to identify as a Gentile. You are no longer to identify as a sinner, right? I don't know if you have heard, but there are people who, for whatever reason, they still like to identify with their old selves, right? They say, I am a recovering uh, uh, alcoholic, or I'm a, a, a homosexual Christian, or I'm a, you know, you name it. But there's there are all of these things that they would add to being a Christian. You know, I'm this old sin Christian. Well, Paul doesn't really do that a whole lot. I mean, he does call himself a sinner. He does say that people are sinners. But most of the times, the majority of the times, Paul refers to believers in positive terms. He calls them saints. He calls them elect. He calls them, uh, uh, you know, they are the people of God. And so here Paul is not saying, you must no longer walk in the futility of your mind because that's a thing of the past. Rather, he says, you must not longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, what is this futility of their minds? Well, futility is a word that is usually associated in the Bible with idolatry. So in the Old Testament, this word futility, which, you know, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is usually described or, or used when the authors are talking about idolatry. Why? Because idolatry is empty. Idolatry is futile. There is nothing, there is no power to worshiping a vain, empty idol. 
And so whenever the Old Testament is talking about idolatry, it brings up that this idea of something being futile. And so here Paul is saying that the Gentiles, they have a futile mind. They have a, a mind that is pursuing vain, empty things. They have a mind that is ultimately idolatrous. And, and not necessarily because they all of them are worshiping actual little images or idols or things like that, but because people have turned from worshiping God, or, or maybe not turned from worshiping God, but they have never worshiped God, and instead they have turned to worship the created things instead of the creator. I think that uh, Paul uh, puts it very clearly in Romans chapter 1, and so I want us to go there, and I want to read from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'm going to read a few verses of Romans 1, verse 18. Here, Paul is explaining this futility of the Gentiles' minds, the unbelievers. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became, and look, and, and here's the word, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lust, in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So here is a great, well, great in the sense of a really good description, but it's also a very sad description of the futility of the Gentiles' minds. They had all the evidence of, of God's creation, of God's beauty. They looked at the world that God created, and instead of going and worshiping God, the creator, they started worshiping the creatures. And so this caused their minds to be darkened, their hearts to be hardened. They started or they suppressed the truth about God, they denied the truth about God, and they were completely darkened. And so here, Paul is giving us a little bit of a summary of, of this you know, larger description in, in Romans. Paul is giving us a summary here in Ephesians uh, 18. So this is what he says about, about the Gentiles, about their minds. He says, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So 
darkened in their understanding doesn't mean that they don't know anything or that they're dumb or stupid or anything like that. That's not what it means. It means that their understanding of God, their understanding of the gospel, their understanding of how this world truly works is darkened, right? They, they, are, they are intelligent. They can see the things that happen. They can, they can admire some things about the creation, but because they're darkened is, sorry, because their understanding is darkened, they will deny that God was the one who created those things. They will deny that God is the one who is in control of the universe. They will deny that salvation is found only in God through Jesus, his son. They will deny, some will even go as far as to deny the existence of God because they are darkened in their understanding. The gospel seems foolishness to them. And this is because they are alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. They are separated from God. They are enemies of God. They are hostile to God. They do not have a relationship with God. Man's biggest problem is that he does not have a relationship with God. That is the biggest problem of humanity. That's why, you know, I, I think that it's amazing to feed the hungry and to minister to them and, and to minister to the poor. But I think we need to understand that their biggest problem is not that they are poor or that they don't have food. Their biggest problem is that they have a broken relationship with God, the creator of the universe. And, we'll, and you know, maybe that goes for our homeless neighbors, but we should think of our of our other neighbors as well, right? Their biggest problem is not that they're getting divorced or that that uh, um, they vote for the wrong political party or whatever, you know, whatever we think their biggest problem is, their biggest problem is that they are separated. They are alienated from God. And this is due to hardness of heart. Once the unbelievers start denying God, start worshiping things other than God, then their hearts continue to get hardened and hardened and hardened. I've, I've been reading a, or actually I finished reading a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And I think it's a really incredible book. Now, at, at the beginning of the book, C.S. Lewis does have a disclaimer saying, this is just an, an, an analogy. This is just a novel. It is not my attempt to describe how heaven and hell are, but the book is about heaven and hell. And basically in this fictitious analogy, uh, some people from hell are able to travel to heaven and they are met with family members or, or people who they knew when they, were on, when they were alive on earth. And one of the things that really, really captivated me about this book is the blindness and the hardness of the people who are coming from hell, right? Because they are in, in heaven. They are seeing these, you know, their friends who used to be uh, equal with them, but now they are seeing them, you know, with this kind of glorified essence to them and they are seeing heaven and how amazing everything is, but they continue to harden their hearts. 
they continue to reject the truth about God. They continue to reject the gospel. And one really well-known quote is actually, I didn't realize, but it comes from this book where uh, C.S. Lewis says something to the extent of, um, to those, basically, those who are in heaven are those who said to God, thy will be done. And those who are in hell are those to whom God said, thy will be done. And ultimately, this is saying those who are in hell, they want to be there because of their hardness of heart, because of how callous their heart has become. And this is what Paul says in verse 19. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When you keep rejecting God, when you keep worshiping the creatures instead of the creator, when you keep lusting after things that are not God, there comes a point where God says, all right, this is what you want. Take it. You can have it all. And that's not a good thing. That is not a good thing. It means that your heart has been fully hardened. You are callous. It will take a miracle to turn you back around. So that is the warning, right? This is Paul saying, you should no longer walk like the Gentiles. Now, before we move on to the contrast, I do want to, uh, uh, I, I do want to say again that knowing about the Gentiles and knowing about their hardness of heart and, and, and their, the, the darkening of their understanding should never lead us to a judgmental attitude of saying, I am better than you. I think this should humble us and it should bring us to, to remembrance of knowing that this is who we used to be. We used to be Gentiles. We used to be worshipers of idols, not necessarily little figures, but we would worship everything else. We would pursue anything else other than God. We would pursue our own happiness. We would pursue our own pleasure, our own desires, our own satisfaction, and it would harden ourselves and our hearts against God. And it was by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, that he saved us. It was, I love that verse that says that it was while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was not after we became good and we decided to choose him, but it was when we were still his enemies, when we were still dead, when there was no hope for us, that's when God saved us. And that's the only reason why we are no longer Gentiles. But the call here is, if we are, not if we are no longer Gentiles, then stop walking like a Gentile. You are no longer a Gentile. Stop walking like one. Now, here's the contrast, verse 19, sorry, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Christ. While the Gentiles live in darkness, 
while they while they live in ignorance, while they do not understand how the world functions because they do not acknowledge God. Here it says that the truth is in Jesus. If you want to know how the world functions, the truth is in Jesus. He is the one through whom everything else makes sense. It is only through Jesus that we can know God. It is only through Jesus that we can know how to live in this world the way that we are supposed to live in this world. It is only through Jesus that we can make sense of this world that God has created and we can find uh, and we can and we can find the truth because the truth is in him. I love that he says, but that is not the way that Christ. I love that that he says that instead of that is not the way you learned from Christ, right? Because learning from Christ would say that's not the way you learned about the teachings of Christ, which are extremely important. But here I, I, I feel like he's giving us the whole package. He's saying that is not the way you learned Christ. We want to know Christ fully and deeply and intimately. We want to know his teachings. We want to know his life. We want to know fellowship with him, communion with him. We want to be his closest friends. It is only through Christ that we will be able to battle our sin. It is only through Christ that we will be able to walk as his called people and not as Gentiles. You can try really, really, really hard and be super self-disciplined and have a, a bunch of different methods and techniques and filters on your computer and, and do whatever it is that you think you need to do to walk according to the calling that you have received. But if you leave Christ out of the equation, then you're never going to make any progress. You might see the appearance of progress, but ultimately Christ is the only one who will transform you. You don't need more filters or, or things that will prevent you to do bad things or to things that will prevent you to sin. You need transformation. You need to become a different person. You need to be renewed. And the only one that will do that renewal is Jesus. The whole Jesus. And that's why he says that is not the way you learned Christ. Now, here are three aspects of Christian transformation. Now, these are not necessarily in chronological order. I think that this is more like a uh, like three three like a like a. Um, yeah, I guess you call it a trio, right? Three, three people singing, and each one is singing a, a different part of the song. These are happening at the same time. These three aspects of Christian transformation should be happening simultaneously. So this is what we have, this is one of the things we have learned or we were taught in Jesus. The first thing that he mentions is to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So even though we are no longer Gentiles, we do have an old self within us. But this old self is an unwelcomed guest. This old self is a squatter. 
if you uh, if you were paying attention to the housing market, you know when things were booming, when houses were extremely expensive, you probably saw in the news or somewhere where like people were selling their houses with squatters living in these houses. Like that's how crazy it was. Uh, uh, that that's how crazy the market was. You know, it was I, I'm just gonna sell my house. I'm gonna get a lot of money, even though I have a squatter in the basement. People will deal with the squatter. Well, this old self is a squatter that we need to get rid of. It's, it, it is an unwelcomed guest. It is no longer who we are. We are not the old self anymore. The old self still creeps in a little bit and still you know, has these deceitful desires. And sometimes, oftentimes, more times that we would, than we would like, we listen to the old self. We give in to the old self. We give in to these deceitful desires. This old self is corrupt. This old self is still after Adam. It's still under the, the influence of sin. It is still under the corruption of sin. And so our job is to actively put it off or take it off. Imagine it is a piece of clothing and you are taking it off. Or imagine that it is a horrible creature and you are starving it to death. You are killing it. That's what you should be doing. It was John Owen who said, you should be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you do not kill sin, sin will come back and kill you. In this book that I was telling you of C.S. Lewis, there is, in one of the encounters, there is this thing. There is this very little Creature and it's supposed to be a human, but it's so deformed now by sin that you know uh, the 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 perspective from the perspective of the narrator, he can barely make up what this thing is. But he is um, chained or, or or holding a chain onto something else or or a different person that seems to be like this actor or this kind of put together figure. And so when when the thing that is bringing the, the, the person uh, chained up, when he encounters the, the, his friend that came to talk to him, I think, I think she was his wife, uh, she is talking to the little thing, right? Like she has to stoop down and talk to the little thing. But the interesting thing is that whenever he wants to respond, he just tugs on the chain and the, the person speaks. And so I see that as kind of being the old self, right? That is there taking taking over and, and, and working for the little deformed creature. And then at some point, it, kinda, it almost seems like, like that things are turning around and the, the deformed creature actually starts becoming more and more like a human. And actually, there comes a point where when the, 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 you know, the old self is no longer talking, it is the little, the little human talking, and, it, and he actually seems to grow bigger and bigger but then, I don't know, something happens, he gets upset, things turn around, and he starts becoming smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that he can no longer see him, to the point that it's like, I don't know where he is anymore. All I can see is the old self. And so, I think that that's how we need to see our sin, our old self. It is something that we need to kill. We need to get rid of. If we do not get rid of it, it will kill us. Now, the second aspect is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 
to put off the old self, to, to kill it, we need to starve it to death. And we need our minds to be renewed in, we need our minds to be renewed. And how are our minds renewed? Well, our minds are renewed with what we feed our minds. If we feed our minds Jesus, if we feed our minds the gospel, if we feed the truth of the gospel to us, to ourselves, then that's what will come out of us. That's what will grow. The new self will grow and the old self will die. But we shouldn't expect to be renewed. We shouldn't expect to put the old self to death if we're reading the Bible in the morning for five minutes, we pray for five more minutes, and then we go on with our lives and we scroll through Facebook and we watch a bunch of uh, uh, shows and we... Uh, you know, watch the news. Not, not that these things are evil in and of themselves, but what I'm saying is the things that we are feeding our minds are the things that will be transforming us. And so if you really want your mind to be transformed, then feed your mind the gospel of Jesus. Feed your mind the truth about God. That's how you will transform your mind. That's how your mind will be renewed. And then lastly, he says, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We need to cultivate this, this new self. This new self, it's amazing because this is the one created in the likeness of God. It is interesting that when God created Adam and Eve, he said that they were created in the image of God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God was distorted in them. The, the image of God was marred in them. And ever since then, humanity, every single human who is born, is, he is born with a marred image of God. We are still image bearers. We still do things that, that, that show that we were created by God and in the image of God. But we need transformation. We need to be born again we need to be recreated into the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you are not a believer, if you have not been born again, if your mind has not been renewed, then it doesn't matter how hard you try to be transformed, you will never be able to be transformed because what you need is you need to be created again. You need new life. And the amazing thing is that this new life is given to us in Jesus. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God in his mercy has given us new life. When Jesus died, 
Our old self was crucified with Jesus. And when Jesus rose again, we were, we were raised with him. We were given a new life. And so as we think about, as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, I want to bring this verse to mind, and, and I want to close with this. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As we think about communion, as we remember the death of Jesus, let us remember these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for transforming us. Thank you that we are no longer Gentiles, not because of anything we've done, Lord, but because of your grace, because of your mercy. Lord, please strengthen us by the grace of your son, Jesus, to walk according to the calling we, which we have received and not to walk as Gentiles. Help us to starve our old self because ultimately our old self is already dead. Please transform our minds with the power of your gospel. Please renew us. Please uh, feed our new self. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.